Matthew uh, chapter 28, verses 11 through 20. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today, I love Sundays. Amen. Sitting out on my deck this morning, uh, thinking of uh, gathering with you, uh, brought a smile to my face. I, I love my church family, and it is good to be with you. Good to be with you today. On Wednesday evening, brothers and sisters in Christ uh, gathered at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina, they gathered for Bible study and for prayer Wednesday night. They had an individual join them, a guest. We've all had this happen, had guests come to a service or a prayer meeting or a Bible study. We all know from the headlines what happened, that that guest who had been with them uh, for an hour or so, I think, pulled out a a gun and and murdered nine of the people that had gathered for the study of God's word and for prayer. I think we've all heard about this. We've all seen it on the headlines. Uh, What you may or or may not be aware of is what happened Friday night in North Charleston, South Carolina, where the gospel was on display in the courtroom where he was arraigned. And charged. The gospel. Specifically, the theme of forgiveness in the gospel, as well as the gospel itself, was in the courtroom on Friday. Let me read to you from an article in the Washington Post, June 19th, 2015. Article is entitled, I Forgive You, Relatives of Charleston Church Shooting Victims Address Dylan Roof, Dylan Roof being the murderer. Let me read some of this article to you. The relatives of people slain inside the historic African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina, earlier this week were able to confront the accused gunman Friday at his first court appearance. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing 
did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul. I forgive you, uh, Nadine uh, Collier. Uh, She's pictured here uh, in green. Uh, I forgive you, Nadine Collier, uh, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the beginning uh, of the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again, her 70-year-old mother. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. The bond hearing in North Charleston was the first public appearance of Dylan Roof, uh, the 21-year-old arrested in connection with the shootings since police booked him into a Charleston County Detention Center and said he was charged with nine counts of murder. Roof only spoke uh, to confirm his address, age to the state, and that he is unemployed, while a procession of victims rose to speak Roof largely stared down, his eyes avoiding the camera trained on his face. Gosnell, the judge, began the hearing by saying that there was pain on both sides, the victims of the shooting inside the Emmanuel AME Church, as well as the relatives of Roof, who were reeling from what happened. He then recited the names of the people killed inside the church, and each time asked, if any relatives or representatives of the slain wanted to make a statement in the courtroom. At one point, one of the people who survived the shooting rose to speak, Felicia Sanders. She survived the shooting by pretending to be dead, according to a relative. But her son, Taiwanza Sanders, was killed. That's what she said. We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with welcome arms. Her voice is trembling. Taiwanza Sanders was my son, but Taiwanza Sanders was my hero. Taiwanza was my hero. May God have mercy on you. Some people chose not to speak. Others, like a relative of Myra Thompson, echoed the forgiving sentiment, calling on Ruth to repent, to repent, to believe the gospel. Wanda Simmons, granddaughter of Daniel Simmons, said that the pleas for Ruth's soul were proof that hate won't win. One by one, they stood to speak, and each time Ruth remained impassive, his eyes cast downward. The article goes, uh, goes on and on. I just think it's right for us to take a moment and just pray for these brothers and sisters and for this, uh, for this man. Let's just do that right now. Let's just bow our heads and, and pray. Father in heaven, we want to stand as one body in Christ with our brothers and sisters from South Carolina. What happened to them is just, uh, just really hard to comprehend. And so we ask Jesus that you would be with them in a very 
real and rich way as they, they need you so desperately. We need you every hour, but they are so aware of their need for you. And we pray that your presence would be strong in their lives. Lord, we're thankful for their example to us and how you, by your grace, have worked in them to be able to go so soon in the midst of their grief, so raw, to be able to go into a courtroom and say, I forgive you to the man who took their loved ones from them. So Lord, we want to join them in praying for him that you would have mercy on this man, Dylan that he would repent, that he would believe the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a hard uh, transition uh, from that uh, to our sermon for today, but we're going to do that. Um, This really hit me this week. Um, I don't know if this hits you or not, what happened there. I think in part it hit me because I was uh, in San Diego, Pastor Adam and I were in San Diego, and we were with uh, the body of Christ from all over the country. African-American brothers there, a guy who I had lunch with one day, not who was African-American, but a guy who I had lunch with one day. And, um, you know, I have to kind of confess, it, it hadn't hit me yet what had happened there in the way that it probably should have. In other words, I wasn't feeling solidarity and unity with those brothers and sisters in South Carolina like I should. And this guy I'm having lunch with is just hardly able to eat. And, I, and I'm like on a totally different page than he is. And so it took some time for me to enter into where he was and, and to recognize this is, this is our family. We don't know these folks, but this is, this is our family. So I'm just sharing my heart with you today and trying to, trying to transition here in, uh, into a sermon. Um, so let's do that. Philippians. We have finished going through the book of Philippians verse by verse. Last week we looked at the benediction, the final parting words from Paul to this church that he loved so much in Philippi. Next week, we'll beginning our, we're beginning our new series in 1 Corinthians. And so today we're, we're, today's an overview message. We're going to look back on uh, the book of Philippians and this theme of joy. And for a short chapters, a short letter of Paul, about ten times he mentions joy or contentment. And one time, that favorite famous line, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you missed that, he says it again, rejoice. So this theme of joy is what I want to look back on um, as this kind of transition, transition message between Philippians and next week as we begin 1 Corinthians. From my own personal experience, I have been walking with Jesus for nearly 30 years with some friends last night who had a similar hair color that I do, and we were talking about how time goes by and how, uh, and how we're getting older. And so uh, nearly 30 years I have been walking with Jesus, and during those years there have been many seasons where joy has been elusive, where joy has not been in my heart and in my life. You may be in one of those 
stages of life, those seasons of life right now. You may not be. Joy may be right at hand, may be in your heart. So what I want to do as we look back, we're going to look just at one passage briefly as we look back on this theme of, of joy. I want to look uh, at, at the reasons why this joy might be elusive. And of course, there are probably dozens or hundreds or thousands of reasons that joy may be elusive in your life or in my life as a follower of Jesus. But I want to look at Paul's life and I want to look at, at uh, Philippians and we're going to look at three reasons why joy would be elusive and of course how we have it. How do we experience this joy that we see so clearly in Paul's life and in his heart as he writes this book. Now we should be reminded that this isn't always the case for Paul. He's full of joy as he's sitting in prison writing to this church that he loves very much. He's been unjustly put in prison because of the gospel, but joy just comes out. I'm not going to go over it all. We've seen it over the last months. He is full of joy. But we could flip over to Romans 7, where Paul isn't full of joy. And he's fighting the fight of the flesh and of sin, and he's reflecting on how I don't do the things I want to do, and the very things I do want to do, I don't do. So Paul's like us, but in Philippians, we see he's in this season where joy is, is, is his. And so I want us to, to understand why it's not elusive in Paul's life in Philippians, and I'm praying that that will help us in our lives so that joy will be with us. So let's, let's pray once again, and then we'll get into our, our passage and the message for today. Father, uh, we're thankful for the word of God. We're thankful for the clarity that it brings. We're thankful for its sufficiency that your will for our lives has been revealed clearly. And yet, Lord, it's hard. It's hard to to live in the joy that Paul experienced and that we have experienced in different times of our in different seasons of our Christian lives. So we ask that you would speak to each one of us now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Through your word, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Philippians uh, chapter 2 and verse 14. If you would turn there. Philippians 2 and verse 14. I'm going to read uh, verses, uh, verses 14 through 16. We've preached this passage, just another angle on it. Philippians 2, 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. A few comments on these couple verses. I've already mentioned, you've heard it a ton of times, Paul's sitting in prison, he's unjustly accused, and yet he writes here at the beginning of verse 14 to the Philippians, do everything without complaining or arguing. And I think he's writing to his own soul here too. I think many of us, if we're in in his shoes, we are complaining, we are arguing, we want out, this is unjust. And this might be at the top of our lists 
But Paul is saying to the Philippians, no, don't go that route. I'm not going that route, and you shouldn't go that route either. There is no reason for the follower of Jesus, including unjust imprisonment, to complain or argue, including the murdering of your family members at your Bible study or prayer meeting. Do everything without complaining or arguing, whether this is referring to internal disputes in the church or whether it's these dramatic things like Paul's life or what was experienced in South Carolina. Do it without complaining or arguing. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. We certainly have reminders, a reminder this week of how crooked and depraved and racist our generation is. And we are called to be blameless and pure. In the midst of that, you Philippians, you, you uh, cornerstoners, I've been using that word, is that okay? Cornerstoners? <laughs> cornerstoners. You have been called. You have been called, Philippians and cornerstoners, to be without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Don't complain about what's going on. Your mission is to shine in the universe, in the cosmos is the Greek word. As you hold out the word of life, as you hold out the gospel. This is what our brothers and sisters did Friday night in a courtroom. They held out the word of life, the gospel, to a man in particular who who doesn't deserve that grace, just like me and just like you. The Bible says if we hate our brother or sister, we are murderers. So we have more in common with that guy than we like to think if we read our Bibles rightly. This thing is awesome, isn't it? This, uh, this thing here. Um, I was just complaining and grumbling, wasn't I? So I repent. I was. I was lying, though. So I was lying... And I was complaining and grumbling. So I repent of that. Let's come back to the, come back to the message here. Um, where was I? They're holding out the word of life. This is what Paul's asking of the Philippians. This is what he's asking of us, that we hold it out in order that I may boast on the day of Christ, that I, may not, that I didn't run or labor for nothing. In other words, there's a heritage of disciples. There's a family of God in Philippi. And so if I don't make it out of here, everything's cool. Let's look at 17 and and 18. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, he's he's alluding here again to his possible, not likely, but his possible capital punishment. He may be executed. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, Philippians, if Caesar's household, if the Roman authorities, if they kill me, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So we see here the durability, the durability of biblical joy. 
And that's why I went back to this passage. I thought about looking at all the different references. I went back to this passage because this is where Paul is reflecting on the terrible circumstances that he's in. He's reflecting on them here in these couple verses that he may be killed. And if I am, I've got joy. You've got joy because we have been holding out the word of life. So many people in Philippi have come to know the Lord. Even people in Caesar's household, we saw last week in this final greeting, soldiers, prison guards have come to know Christ. And if I go home to live as Christ, to die as gain, I, I'm ready to go. So biblical joy or gospel joy is most clearly seen during dark nights, during hard times in life. This is when it's most clearly seen. Paul's in one of those seasons right here, but you've got to look closely in Philippians to see it because he is so full of joy. His joy is not dependent upon his circumstances. His joy is dependent upon the gospel, his love for Jesus, and his heritage of children of God that are, that are in his wake that he has, he has made disciples of. So we need to keep this in mind because if we're not, if we're in a, in a good season of life or even just a good moment, of life. It's hard to see gospel joy. It's hard to see biblical joy when we're having fun. Uh, Friday night, we had uh, junior high and high school kids uh, to our home. Some of you have been there. A few of you have been on our, our zip line in our woods. We've got a pretty steep grade. And uh, kids sit down in this little seat, and we have a little countdown, and they, they fly down. Uh, uh, we, we calculated it one time. I don't remember. It was like 30 miles an hour or something. They end up going down the zip line. And then they hit a bungee break at the bottom. They hit this bungee cord, and it kind of slingshots them back up, and they come down. So I have never seen a kid depressed on that zip line. <laughs> I've never seen anyone having a dark night of the soul on that zip line. It's like the first hill of a roller coaster. You can't see biblical joy when you're on that zip line. You just see the fun that, that is going on. But in Paul's setting in life, in prison, in Philippi, we can see clearly what biblical joy looks like. Friday night in a courtroom in South Carolina, with tears and grief, we saw what biblical joy looks like. People who are able to love their enemy in the midst of their grief by the grace of God. So I'm going to this passage because Paul's reflecting on this dark time that most of Philippians, as you read through here, he's saying, man, this guy's doing awesome. He's having a good time. He's got tough circumstances going on, but it hasn't robbed him of his joy. So why is this elusive for us? Three things. Why is joy elusive? And how might we, how might we get it? Number one. Joy is elusive and how to have it. You're loving the wrong thing. You and I fall into the trap of loving the wrong thing. Paul loves Jesus Christ more than anything else in the universe. More than money, more than a spouse, more than a nice home, more than personal comforts. He loves Jesus more 
than anything else. And so what happens in our lives, what has happened in my life, is when we start to love things, especially good things, too much in place of Jesus, and those things are threatened, or those things are taken away, our joy goes. Our joy goes away. Because I'm not really loving Jesus the way Paul loves Jesus. I'm really loving something else. And when that something else is threatened, whether it's a relationship, whether it's money, whether it's personal comfort, my joy goes away. Um, those of you that know me uh, know this is, uh, this is where I, I love to be right here, other than with you on Sunday mornings. This is true. I love Sunday mornings. I love gathering with God's people in a living room. And I love to be out in God's creation, whether I'm on my bike whether I'm up in the mountains, this is uh, not last summer, the summer before, one of my boys here and his friend, I'm off to the right there uh, fishing, 14,000 foot peaks around me, this is uh, near uh, Mount Whitney, it's down south a ways, and I want to tell you a little story about my heart and one of those seasons of my life where joy w- was, was elusive, it's, it, it's, it's kind of going away, it was shortly after uh, Shortly after my uh, son Michael was born, I'm not sure how old he was. Those of you that know me know I'm pretty bad with sequence in years. And I had a back uh, issue. It was Michael like two years old or something like that? Something like that. And he's about 15 now, going to be 15. And so I've got this serious back issue going on. And I can't bike. I can't get out. I, I, I can't go backpacking. I can't do the things that I love to do. I can't do them. I, can, I couldn't even walk at times. I, I have memories of riding on the back seat of the truck, laying down with no seatbelt on, breaking the law. Didn't get a ticket that time, but you know they couldn't see me lying down back there. I, I couldn't sit. And so this was going on for a long period of time. And so I'm starting to process in this unknown future of what my life may be like. I may not be doing these things anymore. And so, so the Lord's kind of revealing to me, you know, these things may not quite be as under the Lordship of Jesus as, as they need to be. If you're going to fall into depression and discouragement because you can't go places like that anymore... What do you really love? And so I'm fighting the fight of faith. And I, I can remember going, all I was allowed to do was walk. And as it turned out, this period was only about six months long. And I was able to slowly come back to doing the things that I, I love to do. It's just kind of how, partly how God made me. This week we're in San Diego. I'm going a little crazy in a hotel room and sitting in places. I like, I need to get out. I need to get out somewhere. I need to get in the ocean. I need to go. That's just how I am. But the Lord was saying to me back then, um, your, your joy, you need to be careful, Mike. Your joy doesn't come from those things. Those things can go away. But only your relationship with me, only your connection to the gospel, that is the only thing that can't be taken away from you. And this is where your joy has to come from. This is first and second commandment stuff of the Ten Commandments. You shall 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols. So one of the reasons that joy is elusive is that we're loving the wrong thing. A second, uh, a second reason why joy is elusive, why we don't have it, is we're living the wrong mission. We're living the wrong mission. What is the mission? Look back at the text with me briefly, chapter 2 and verse 16. The mission is in here. As you hold out the word of life, Philippians, as you hold out the gospel, this is what you are to continue doing. This is what I've been doing. And Paul has joy because the mission is being lived out. The mission is to hold out the word of life. The mission is to make disciples. That is my mission. That is, if you're a believer in Jesus, your mission. That was Paul's mission. Now, we sometimes think, well, Paul was a missionary. I want to say in some ways, yes, but I want you to hear this morning, no, he was not a missionary. Paul was a tent maker. You guys know that, right? His vocation, he sewed things and made tents. That's what he did. He didn't do it when he was in prison. He needed support there. So don't say, um, my mission isn't to make disciples. My mission is to be a teacher. Or my mission is to be a basketball coach. Uh, I've been coaching basketball the last five years. And I have to remind myself that my mission when I coach basketball is only partly to teach them to play basketball and to play as a team and to score more points than the other team during a game. That's, that's a part of my mission, but that is far below the mission that Jesus has given me to make disciples of those boys on my team. If they're not Christians, my main mission is that they would come to know Jesus. If they are Christians, my mission is that they would grow to love and, 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 and worship Jesus more and more. So one of the reasons that you and I may not be finding joy is we don't have the same mission that Paul has, that the Philippians have. Our mission is to hold out the word of life to those around us in our sphere of influence. We don't have to go to Philippi. We don't have to go to the Middle East or North Africa. It is our mission no matter where we are. And I believe this is hugely relevant to the reason why we find joy elusive because we've got the wrong mission in life. We haven't received the mission that Jesus gave that Joe read just moments ago before he ascended to heaven. He gave the mission for us to make disciples. That is the mission of us, the church, his people. So one of the things that we need to come to terms with if we're going to be on mission is to know what, it, what is a disciple. And this would be a good thing if your small group's meeting this week to put scripture verses to these four things and talk about what a disciple is. What is a disciple? A lot of different ways we could define what a disciple is. This is what we are called to do by the grace of God, empowered through the Holy Spirit. He is the one that does the work, but he chooses to use us. The first thing in defining a disciple is that a disciple is a Christian. He has a new identity. To use the language of John 3, a disciple is someone who's born again. Someone who moves from darkness into light. Someone who has been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, has repented of their sins, and has 
believed in Jesus as his sin substitute or her sin substitute. So a disciple is someone who has a new identity in Christ. A disciple is someone who worships or loves Jesus increasingly. We don't stop in growing. So good. Again, Adam and I were talking uh, toward the end of the service about San Diego. So good to be down there and to grow in times of worship and loving Jesus at the Evangelical Free Church Conference that we were at this last week. A disciple is someone that obeys Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Everything that I have commanded you, the Bible and especially the gospel, living out the gospel, the themes of the gospel or the contours of the gospel, living out forgiveness like our brothers and sisters in South Carolina did Friday night. A disciple is someone that obeys Jesus who lives out the gospel, displays the themes of the gospel in the way that we live everyday life no matter what comes. So some of us are not on mission and that's why joy is elusive for us. So I want to be a little I want to be practical here and give you a picture of what it might look like to be on mission. And I could spend an hour doing this, but let me let me uh, oh there's one more thing here. Sorry. This is important. Last last one of a disciple. It's been born again, new identity, loves Jesus, worships Jesus, obeys Jesus, and then teaches others to do one, two, and three. Number four is that we're on mission. This is what our lives are about, to make this through the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit working in me. No matter what our job is, no matter where we live, this is your mission, this is my mission. So let me be practical what this might look like. Because we've talked about this in our small group a lot, with work, with the demands, with kids. What You're going to ask me to be on mission? What? How how am I going to do this? So let me just give you an example. You pray for people that you know who don't know Jesus. You pray for them. We do that. I see a lot of you doing that. We're praying for you. We've done that on prayer cards. We do that. So just an example of how to be on mission. So you begin by prayer, praying for these people. Number two, you, you invite them to a meal. So we're not saying, you know, you need to move to the Middle East or North Africa. You need to invite some people to your home for dinner and love them. People in your neighborhood, people from work, people from wherever who don't know Jesus. And you, and you love them. You become friends with them. They'll probably invite you to their house for dinner. They're not a project. You're developing friendships. You're loving them. And we can all do that. Then I want to suggest, maybe so far you're tracking with me, but now I'm going to say some things you may not, may not track with me. Let me, let me say the, the part that might surprise you first. They're probably not interested in coming here and listening to me talk. Or even Pastor Adam talk. They're probably not interested in it. Okay? Because they're not interested in Jesus. So why would they want to come here and listen to me do this? So don't invite them to do that, probably. Because they don't want to come here. This is boring. Right? I mean, I try to get you to say amen and interact and stuff, but even if you started doing that, they're not going to want to be here, probably. So... I'm kind of lame. You're kind of lame. (laughs) Don't invite them to church on Sunday morning. Okay? What I want to suggest, this is just one example. You could could be on mission a million ways. What I want to suggest is that you invite them here Wednesday night on the month that we're doing the gathering in. 
I think your unbelieving neighbors and coworkers, if you made friends with them and said, hey, you know, our church on Wednesday nights, we've got the homeless, they spend the night at our church and we just feed them a meal. Would you like to come and just cook and, and, uh, and feed them with us? My guess is many of them would like to do that. They would like to come. They won't be like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll come to church with you on Sunday morning. No, yeah, that'd be cool. Can I bring my kids? I think that may be how that some of them would respond. And they come on Wednesday night as we're doing the gathering in, and they see us cooking a meal. They see us loving each other. They see, uh, they see cornerstoners loving each other. And they see us loving the folks who are in here. And now they see the gospel. They, they see us in community loving the people that are in here. And now they may actually want to know about Jesus. And so this is just one example of what it might look like to be on mission. John 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples there. A new command, I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By your Christians loving one another, this is how they're going to know it. So whether you invite him to the gathering in, however you're going to do it, we need to be on mission. Paul was on mission. The Philippians are on mission. So their joy is not dependent upon their circumstances but upon their love for Jesus, which is clearly there, and being on mission, which is clearly there. And then the last one I'll do very briefly here. We're talking about why joy is elusive and how we actually experience joy. And Pastor Adam has already said this. Um, well, let me just say number three since I put it up here. You're fighting the wrong battle. So we're loving the wrong thing. We're living the wrong mission. And finally, we're fighting the wrong battle. And the battle that some of us, I've already alluded to this, that we would be fighting if we were in Paul's scenario would be a legal fight. It would be complaining and grumbling. It would be, get me out of this prison, Lord Jesus, respectfully. Get me out, and then I'm going to find joy. Get me through this season, if you're in one of those now, of the dark night of the soul. Get me through this then I will have joy. We're functioning like God when we pray that way. And so the battle we're fighting is get me through this, then I'm going to get joy. No. The battle that we need to fight is, Lord, I may not be able to backpack. I may not be able to ride my bike. I may not be able to do that. So, Lord, the battle I need to fight is not Once I'm able to do that, I'll come back and have joy and follow you and worship you. The battle I need to fight is, Jesus, help me to love you more than backpacking, more than being in places like that picture I put up there, more than riding my bike. Help me to be content if all I can do is walk or whatever it is by your sovereign and mysterious grace you allowed me to do. Allow our brothers and sisters in South Carolina who are grieving and who are gathering today and processing all of the pain. Help them to to not try to focus on on fighting the battle that, that, that we're going to somehow eradicate racism and sin and this wickedness, and then we'll have joy and peace. No, that that ain't gonna happen until Jesus comes back. 
So we need to find joy in the midst of this world, in the midst of the dark night of the soul, in the midst of racist murders happening at a Bible study and a prayer meeting. That's the battle we need to fight. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, uh, we, uh, we want joy. But we know, as, as Pastor Adam has alluded to in another sermon, that we can't actually shoot for joy. We can't aim for joy. We have to aim for Jesus. We have to aim for his mission. We have to aim for ourselves worshiping you and loving you, to have joy that is durable, that will take us through no matter what life brings. Help us, God, to love you more than anything else in the world. And I pray that you would help us to open our eyes to how you would have us be on mission, whether we are in our last years living in a retirement home, whether we are a high school student, whether we are busy at work, Help us, God, to be on mission and to make disciples who love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you like to stand with us and let's worship?